Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Arise! Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Honorable United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is now open and in session. God save the United States of America and this Honorable Court. Yeah, good to see you again. Steve, great to see you for another episode of Calf Chats. I'm fired up. Yeah, me too, bud. What are we doing today? We're doing United States versus Day. Another recent opinion, right? Calf publishes it in December of 2022. This case is a doozy, Cal. Yeah, tell us what what's this case all about at its most basic level. Yeah, so so most basic is the CAF is figuring out whether attempted conspiracy is a viable offense under the UCMJ. But mm. we're going to talk more about just attempted conspiracy. Uh, because more than half of this opinion is about is a discussion about waiver. So we're going to explore waiver a little bit in the second half of the episode. Love it. And, uh, and just to be clear, a little teaser, this is about attempted conspiracy to commit murder. So interesting murder. facts. Tell us. Tell us about the facts of the case. Yeah, really interesting facts. Quite the case here. So Airman Day marries TD in 2017 after the two meet in an outpatient treatment program in Louisiana. Unknown to Airman Day at the time is that TD was in an on-again, off-again relationship with JM. And she's going to be important later. So no JM with whom he had a child shortly after marrying Day. The Airman Day slash TD marriage goes south eventually uh, after they have their own child, and Airman Day is saddled with bills and is generally disgruntled toward her husband, TD. She starts a messaging group, and this group includes JM, the same as before, and a topic of discussion is complaints against TD and comments, frequent comments from Airman Day about how she has an insurance policy on TD and she talks about killing him. She also has talks with two other people about killing TD, one of whom actually reports her to the local sheriff's office. So this leads ultimately to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. That's the Air Force OSI. That's the Air Force's version of Criminal Investigation Command, better known as CID in the Army. And AFOSI contacts JM, the same, who agrees to be a confidential informant against Airman Day. JM, acting as that informant, brings a bag of what she claims to be fentanyl to Airman Day to use to poison TD. It was not fentanyl. Also happening in the background is Airman Day requesting assistance from another friend, her friend TL, on how to successfully poison her husband. TL agreed to do so for a retainer of $100 a month. Airman Day ultimately is caught. She pleads guilty to one specification of attempted premeditated murder, 
two specifications of attempted conspiracy, and that's why we're here today, to commit premeditated murder, one specification of attempted wrongful possession of fentanyl, and two specifications of solicitation to commit murder. She was sentenced to 10 years confinement, a dishonorable discharge, and reduction to E1. Very interesting. So, Steve, what issue was CAF looking at in this case? So, again, the only issue that CAF granted here is whether an attempted conspiracy is a viable offense under the UCMJ. I'm just looking, what did the gov- is that something the government could have legally charged Airman Day with? Yeah, and we'll get into more details, but I, I, as I was looking at this, when I first saw that that was the issue, I immediately thought, anytime I've charged attempt, it's kind of complicated because attempt is already kind of a weird charge, right? Because you're, you're not charging the actual offense or the actual crime. You're charging that you attempted to do it. And then conspiracy on its own is also kind of wonky because it's kind of an agreement to commit a crime. You're not actually charging the crime itself. And so I immediately thought, oh, interesting. I'm curious how they come down on this idea of combining those two, of attempted conspiracy, uh, already a little bit weird. So what what does CAF ultimately hold? And tell us kind of the relevance of their holding in this case. Yeah, I w- a great point, though. Like The government really doubled up on two tough charges here, right? Two inchoate offenses in one spec. That's tough. And yeah, so the holding here is that is shortly, yes, that attempted conspiracy is a viable offense under the UCMJ, that nothing about the recent statutory change to Article 82, that's the solicitation article in the UCMJ, changed the viability of attempted conspiracy as an offense under the UCMJ, right? So you've got attempts, that's Article 80. You've got conspiracy, that's Article 81. And solicitation is Article 82. They're all sort of involved here. They're all sort of enmeshed in the appellant's argument. Uh and real quick, so when you say change, the changes to the Article 82, what what changes are we talking about here? And we're not not asking specifically, but what just for those that may not be familiar as the military justice system changes, what what changes are we referring to here? Yeah, so great question. And I'll and I'll frame it just a, just so to give context so we understand so our audience understands why we're why that's a great question. Is that so in 1996, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, this same court, decided a case, Riddle. And Riddle was about, it answered the same question. It decided, it was, in that case, the CAF held that attempted conspiracy is a viable offense under the UCMJ. And part of the issue in, and I guess the argument in Riddle was that it was it was three things that the CAF discussed that made attempted conspiracy a viable offense. First, that the language in Article 80 is so broad and it makes no distinction between a conspiracy or any other inchoate offense and any other type of military offense as the lawful subject of an attempt offense. Okay, so that's the first sort of rationale the CAF used in 1996. Second is that no other statute or precedent precludes application of Article 80 to a conspiracy offense. And then third, that Article 80 is particularly appropriate where there is no general solicitation statute in the code or a conspiracy statute embodying a unilateral theory of conspiracy. Okay, so just to pull us back, the reason that that was 
the reason that Riddle like made sense for the calf to get into it all was because attempted conspiracy knows no equal in federal law. It's an it's a I think the quote is it's a creature unique to the UCMJ. Attempted conspiracy is, and part of their justification in 1996 in Riddle was that there's no general solicitation statute in the code. If you look at an old version of Article 82, and I'm finally, sorry, Cal, I'm finally answering your question here. If you look at an old version of Article 82, that's solicitation, uh, prior to 1 January 2019, the government could only charge solicitation if the accused solicited somebody else to do one of four offenses. It was only four offenses. It was, you needed a solicitation to desert, to mutiny, to misbehave before the enemy, or or for sedition. Okay, so one of those four offenses. So in other words, if in 2015, Cal, I solicited you to sell drugs, and by solicit, that's an important term. If I asked you, hey, like sell drugs with me, I might have committed an offense, but I didn't commit a solicitation offense. Got All it. right. And so, but it had to be one of those changed. four offenses, just to clarify. Right. Exactly. Because, because, More because selling drugs wasn't one of those four specific enumerated offenses, then I, I, I might have done something, I, but I didn't commit a solicitation violation there. All right. But one January 2019, when MJ 2016 goes into effect, the new language of 82, and you can open up your book too if you're listening. Does not now there is a general solicitation offense. General solicitation offense meaning any person, so I'm just reading for the code any person subject to this chapter who solicits or advises another to commit an offense under this chapter shall be punished as a court martial shall direct. Mm-hmm. So today, Cal, if I ask you or get you to start selling drugs with me, I have then, I mean, you know, as long as everything is everything else is in line, I have committed a solicitation offense because it's no longer limited to those few offenses. Now, it's important here because I think that's probably why this case was granted because there, because of that change, certainly the appellant here today recognized, well, there's been a change to the language of Article 82. It seemed like that was why the CAF ruled the way they did in Riddle. So let's have another go. But here- as we already said, the CAF disagreed. The CAF sort of acknowledges, yeah, the language is different, but the CAF sort of addressed four of the appellant's positions. So first, we acknowledge, the CAF acknowledges the solicitation statute was changed, but notes, well, Congress didn't amend Article uh, 80, and it didn't amend Article 81, and that was also part of our justification earlier. So those are unchanged. They're still broad. So, okay, so it didn't do everything you th- you think it did. The second argument that the CAF addressed is this idea that it's a creature unknown to federal criminal law. And the CAF dismisses this because no other jurisdiction, no other federal jurisdiction has a statute similar to Article 80, right? This broad statute that certainly doesn't preclude the use of Article 80 to charge a conspiracy, right? An attempted conspiracy. And then third, that a person charged with attempted conspiracy could alternatively be charged with solicitation. This was another argument the appellant put forward. And here, the CAF, it seems like maybe they they gave some pause to it, but they, they note that the decision to eliminate an offense is a question for congressional, not judicial decision, right? So like, yeah, it seems like, it seems like now under, with this new 
general solicitation offense, it certainly seems like like perhaps, yeah, that, that sounds like an attempted conspiracy, but it's up to Congress, not us, the courts, to eliminate an offense. And so because Congress kept both Article 80 and kept the language broad in Article 80, and because 82 is also here, then you know we're still not seeing a problem with it. And then it, there's a fourth argument that, that it's just nonsensical, which probably is, is linked to that. Right. It, it seems a little redundant, but... Um, the CAFS dismisses that with a pretty conclusory analysis about why attempted conspiracy is is sensical and it does make sense. We're still criminalizing what we as an organization we think is exceptionally bad conduct, right? It's just working with others to commit crime. We don't like when groups of people get together to commit crimes. And so CAF is really just saying, hey, the, it's still there. It's Article 80 attempts is still written broadly. Congress kept it there, maybe for a reason. We're not touching it. So interesting. That's so, the yeah, Congress in there. And this was part of their really big military justice act of 2016. Uh, so when Congress made these changes that went into effect on one January, 2019 CAF is sounds like they're saying, Hey, if Congress intended to make more changes, they, they could have, and they would have, but they didn't. And based on where it currently sits, uh, attempted conspiracy is still, is still viable. Uh, even though there was some yeah, that's exactly yeah, exactly right. That's a, that's a great summation, Cal. And you know, this is nothing new. From I think recently, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces has still been they've been relatively consistent in this deference to right. If the language is there, then they're going to follow the, the right. We're all textualists. The CAF is certainly a, is is looking at the text and not reading too much into things. And so this is a good practice point to folks out there, like read the words, right? We talked about this, uh, Josh and I, when we talked to Edwards a, a, a bit ago, it really, you got to read the words and if the words work for you, use them. And this is where changes come. This is where fights are. Uh, really do close reads of things that you're working with out there at the trial level. The other thing interesting about this case to me, Steve, is there's this discussion of waiver, which to be honest, is something I've never really understood. So maybe give us a little synopsis of what waiver means, because there's definitely a fair amount of discussion in this case about that. Yeah, great. We mentioned it earlier. That I, I think half of this opinion is a discussion of waiver and what and what waiver is and why this why this is or isn't waived. And even though CAF ultimately finds that this issue wasn't waived. They really give it a lot of, of time. And so we'll spend a little bit of time on it here. We're going to do something. We're going to have an in-depth chat on waiver at a later time. Maybe it can be a, it'll be a good grab bag episode for us. We'll get yeah. really deep grab into it, but coming. strap it's in coming. for a bit. Yeah. Strap <laughs> in right now. Cause we're going to do a little bit just, to, just to make people a little less dangerous out there. Cause it's a really important concept to understand whatever level you're at. Okay. So waiver simply put, means that an appellate court cannot review your issue. It means that an accused or appellant cannot appeal the legality of that issue. In other words, if an issue is waived at trial, the only thing an appellant can do in order to get relief for, say, something seriously wrong with their trial would be to assert some kind of ineffective assistance of counsel for waiving or causing to waive an issue. All right. So, so hopefully your antenna went up there. If you're you know, if you're in the defense bar, uh, and I'm sure you're thinking about waiver out there, but but realize that there are two kinds of waiver first, all right? So there's waiver by operation of law, 
And then there's waiver by an intentional relinquishment or abandonment of a known right. So let's let's talk quickly about each of these. Waiver by operation of law happens when a procedural rule or precedent provides that an objection is automatically waived upon the occurrence of a certain event and that that event occurred. So an example is failing to file a timely motion to suppress. An accused can't bring this issue up if he or she misses that RCM 905 deadline. Another example, which happened here, would be an unconditional guilty plea. So unconditional guilty pleas waive, by operation of law, many, but not all, potential issues. An example of waive of this other kind of waiver, uh, by intentionally relinquishing a known right, would be an accused agreeing to a waive all waivable motions clause in a guilty plea. You may have seen this where uh, then a military judge asked the defense team, hey, what motions might you have filed but for that clause? And perhaps they'll say something like unreasonable multiplication of charges, right? I would have filed a UMC motion here, uh, but I'm not because we've got this term. And it's an acknowledgement of the right to file such a motion and the intentional waiver of filing that motion. And we allow this because pleas are contracts. Each party has room to negotiate, some maybe have more room than others, and so you can negotiate some rights away during this process. You can't, there's not, there's some rights you cannot waive, but generally a waive all waivables is an intentional relinquishment of a known right. So what happened here is that there was a waive all waivables and an unconditional guilty plea. And so the government on appeal is arguing that this issue that the appellant raised, failure to state an offense, right? That the attempted conspiracy is not a viable offense. The government argues it was waived because you've got to waive all waivables and you've got an unconditional guilty plea. And as we just discussed, those are generally going to waive the ability of an appellant to raise this on appeal. But here, the military judge, after reading the rules, interpreted them as precluding the ability of waiving failure to state an offense. And the CAF ultimately ruled that because the military judge said this, whether or not that was true, right? There's a there's a good footnote in the case, you can see it, where it used to be that uh, there's a case Schweitzer where the CAF said, well, you can't waive failure to state an offense. But after that case, the president who amends all, who controls the RCMs, the president amended RCM 907 to include failure to state an offense as a waivable offense. And so the judge, I guess operating on the, the Schweitzer understanding, informed the appellant, the accused at the time, that that was not a sort of an offhand comment. It seems like uh, that that's not waivable. And so then the CAF rests its hat on that and says, because the judge said that to the accused, it's sort of like a like a detrimental reliance kind of thing, because it's out there, we are finding in this instance on these facts that this issue was not waived. Certainly here, the CAF is not saying that in every case, failure to state an offense is is sort of a, would not be waived under similar circumstances, right? Perhaps a waive all waivables would waive failure to state an offense as an appellate issue in a case where the judge did not advise an appellant in this way. But here, the calf says, no, that was that's enough, and we are going to find this not waived. Very interesting. And so by not being waived, what does that mean for the standard of review? Yeah, great question. So so just because you didn't wait all again, didn't waive it, that just means the appellate court will review the issue. Okay. But the standard of review 
that an appellate court is going to use with something that's not preserved is called it's plain error. Okay, so that, that's a instead of being a waived issue where they won't look at it, this is considered a forfeited issue. So for whatever it like, whether by neglect or whatever, the trial defense counsel doesn't bring it up, then it's reviewed. It's a forfeited issue and it's reviewed for plain error. Plain error has is a it's a three pronged analysis that an appellate court does. First prong was there error. Second prong, was it plain and obvious? Third, did it prejudice the accused? Mm. And here the court stops at the first prong because they find actually that we already discussed, they find, well, we think attempted conspiracy is an offense. And so that ends the plain error analysis. The court says, not error, full stop. We're done here. No need to conduct the rest of our analysis, but... So that's a that's you know there's there's more going on with waiver and forfeiture than that but that's enough to okay now you know hopefully you're you're thinking about this because again it's important at the trial level to be preserving issues because you just don't you, you know there might be something that could be argued on appeal that you've you know you've permanently sort of barred and then like I said the only option then really for an appellant would be to say that you were ineffective now I feel like I have a better sense of waiver. So what, what is the ultimate result? We kind of already talked about it. And what would you say, Steve, quickly as we're wrapping up here, are the biggest takeaways for practitioners out there? Yeah, so certainly that attempted conspiracy is an offense that whatever the statutory changes to Article 82 do, they don't, they don't preclude the government from charging an attempted conspiracy. So that's that's really problem one. And then and then two, I think that a takeaway is if you're the government right here on this case, had the government stopped the judge and and you know, at least like offered their thoughts on whether failure to state an offense is waivable, then let's say they had, and let's say the judge said, Oh, actually, you know what, you're right. I'm looking at RCM 907. It looks like this is waived. And so then could have asked, hey, are you still pleading? Like knowing that this is waived with your waivables. Had that happened, then the analysis in this case, I'm quite confident, would have looked much different. The the CAF would, even if they granted to look at it, uh, I think that the CAF would have found that it was waived or could have, right? They could have looked at, and again, this is a more, this is a more complicated conversation about the effect of the amendment to RCM 907, but it, but perhaps the CAF would have done an analysis of RCM 907 and found that a failure to state an offense claim is waived with a waive all waivables or an unconditional guilty plea, and then it would have stopped with that waiver analysis. They would never would have even gotten to whether an attempted conspiracy was a viable offense under the UCMJ because it would have been waived. And appellate courts are always going to Punt is the wrong way. They're always going to decide cases on the least with the least amount of disruption, right? Is probably the best way to think about it. Hey, if this is waived, it's waived. We don't need to get to the merits of the issue again. And so then the takeaway is, if you're the government watching that, then you know you should know the rules too and and push back if you if you see it. Appreciate it, Steve. And I think it's just a reminder. I hope that for the practitioners out there that this gives you a nice little uh, primer on calf cases as they come out. And that's what we want this to be is a place where you can come and in 20 minutes or less, get a quick synopsis of what the calf case meant that just came out. And hopefully you can bring that back to your offices and feel a little more educated than I did when I was a trial counsel trying to read calf cases. So Steve, thanks for educating us. 
Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's Corps, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.